you know, last two nights or last three nights in a row, I've been pounding whiskey, and I've gotten the it's it's I haven't had to take any medicine. <laughs> wow! And know. look how much better you are. <laughs> Travel back in time to the eighties, reliving the music. Everybody have fun tonight. <laughs> Everybody Wang Chung tonight. <laughs> the movies. I'll have what she's having. And the parties. No one in my family ever drinks. That's great. You probably never run out of ice your whole life. Because just like you, we're stuck in the 80s. Sure, it's not 1985 right now, but who knows what tomorrow will bring. Nineteen eighty-two, a year that introduced us to icons that tower over the pop culture landscape to this very day. Wasn't all wine coolers and roses. Welcome to Stuck in the 80s. It's your host, Steve Spears, and we're back on the air after a very long absence that I'll explain much later. But we're here today to talk about the greatest pop culture busts of 1982. 
with me as always. It seems like it's been 1982 since I talked to you last. The great Brad in L.A. Hey, Steve. What's going on, man? Well, we've been sick. Yeah, That's sick and on the road and you know, technical difficulties. And, oh, but we're going to talk about that later. Sorry. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. And we were also joined this week uh, by a new guest host, the great Jen Cheney. Hello. Thank you for having me. Cool. We're so we're so jazzed to have you. We've been wanting to have you on the show forever. Um, people who don't know Jen, she was the longtime pop culture writer and commentator for the Washington Post, right? Yes, I wrote the Celebritology blog, among other I things. I know. Right. I loved it. I used to uh, pilfer your ideas, with your permission, of course. Yes. You had an uncanny uh, way of knowing when a when a 1980s institution was coming across a significant anniversary date. Yeah, I think uh, it wasn't just your my encouragement. I, I endorsed the fact that you should pilfer me. I, I, I encouraged it as, as uh, uh, forcefully as I could. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think one of the ones I sent you was uh, The Lost Boys when – that anniversary came up, and I just made this huge list of all the many reasons why that movie is great. You know, any reason I can find to make a list about something like that, I will take advantage of it. Lists just just work better on the internet, I think. Oh, of course, yeah. That's the secret to blogging. That's the, the secret to good blogging. Um, what what have you been up to since you left the Post? Where are you writing for these days? Well, I'm still doing some freelancing for the Post, and I've also been freelancing for New York Magazine's Vulture blog. I was recapping Downton Abbey, which has sadly ended. Uh, at least for the season, and uh, just doing some writing for some other places, Slate, Wall Street Journal, wherever, wherever will have me. <laughs> I love the Vulture blog. <laughs> I do That's too. One of my favorites. Yeah. yeah. There's like there's like a, maybe a handful of blogs that you have to read every day. One of them was yours, um, Whitney's Pop Candy over at USA Today. Mm-hmm. I would read every morning. Uh, Vulture blog. Um, some of the blogs on the Hollywood Reporter were always good. Mm-hmm. Yep. They were. All- they were always really good about finding out what the next uh, Hollywood uh, sequel from the '80s was going to be. Right, oh. and 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 BuzzFeed now they're they're masters of the list that we were just talking about. Oh yeah, big time, big time. Um, today though, we're not going to make a list. We're going to talk about the video games, the movies, uh, the TV shows of 1982, not the hit shows, but the pop culture busts of 1982. And some people might remember that we've done this series before, but we've always just tackled um, the movies. But this time we're gonna we're gonna venture out a little bit. We're gonna try to include um, other areas of pop culture. So we're gonna be defending a little bit of everything. Hopefully we don't cross uh, cause too many nightmares. Although I'm pretty sure some of these earworms that we're about to hit are gonna be a little painful. So let me get the stage set um, by first asking everyone. We're talking about the year 1982. So where were you? So Jen, in 1982, how old were you, and where were you living? 1982 was the year I turned 10. So for half the year I was nine, for half the year I was ten. I was living pretty much where I'm living now, so just outside Washington, D.C. in Maryland. And uh, I was going to elementary school, you know, making my way through the rough and tumble world of, uh, what, fifth grade, I guess? Oh, geez. Yeah. So had you even been to a concert? Had you been to a concert yet at that point or anything? Yes, I had because uh, my dad's company had one of those um, – they called them a loge, but it's really like a like a box or a suite at the Capitol Center, which no longer exists. And so <laughs> sometimes they would get my dad would get tickets to take us to something where we could sit in in the little box up there. So by that time, I had seen Kiss, I had seen uh, the Doobie really? Brothers, I had seen Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band, I had seen Electric Light Orchestra. Yeah, I was I was a veteran of the oh, concert scene at that point. You've got to be kidding oh me! Oh my god! <laughs> I, you know what? I resign. 
<laughs> Holy crap. I mean, that's like, that, you saw ELO. That's like, yeah. In the, in the, oh. oh, that's just, uh, um, you know, uh, you know, it's, not, not to get too, um, like sad here, but when my, before my dad passed away, one of the last conversations I had with my dad and my brother and I all present, he was still talking about that ELO concert. He's <laughs> like, it's like, remember when the spaceship came down? <laughs> oh, jeez. Wow. That is, you know, that's pretty cool. Yeah. Oh man, yeah. no kidding. Made, made a big impression. I, to say that I burn with envy is to understate the case a little. During the Kiss concert, I had to go to the infirmary because it was so loud that my ears could not take it, and the cotton that my parents were putting in there wasn't working, so I had to go to the like Capital Center health room. <laughs> <laughs> it's just too loud. Yeah, it's just too darn loud. <laughs> it's too darn loud. Has anybody as as I've I've never used ear plugs at a concert before although i clearly I always, should have i always use earplugs at concerts really oh yeah my so. husband does and i can't do it for some reason i you just can't it, sing along me. it's one thing that you can't do is you can't sing along because you hear it in your head too much but you know what i like being able to hear i'd like to be able to hear when i'm older <laughs> yeah i can take it or leave it <laughs> okay brad let's see you uh let's see you match uh jen what were you doing in 1982 uh, oh, well, match. I don't think I can match it. Uh, in 1982, I was a 15-year-old living in western Oklahoma. I had yet to move to California. My family hadn't moved to California yet. Uh, so I was, uh, what, in eighth grade? and No, I'm sorry. Yeah, I was a freshman in high school, sophomore in high school that year. Um, you know, still, actually, let's see. Yeah, the first half of that year, I was still delivering papers for a job. Years from now, when people hear that statement, then they're not going to know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah, that 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 <laughs> job doesn't exist anymore, does it? I can laugh about it now that I don't work for one. Um, let's see, 1982. So I would, we're the same age, right? So, yep. so that would have made me a, a, a sophomore, freshman sophomore, you say, or something like that. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, something like that. 15 years old. Um, yes, I had been to a concert at that point. It would have been Journey on the Escape Tour, ACDC. Uh, um, for those about to rock and maybe even rush for exit stage left. But, um, and I would have been living here in Florida, uh, in the Tampa Bay area. Yeah. See, if I'd um, been to a concert at that point, it would have been with my, uh, church youth group to see like Amy Grant or something like that. Uh, so. Was she performing then? In the early eighties. Yeah. Yeah. I so I think so. Jeez. I, I, I do remember, known. I do remember going to see her in, in what we out in the boonies called the city, Oklahoma <laughs> city. That's a legitimate sized city. It's yeah. not why you, why do you mock it? It's just funny because people in Oklahoma call Oklahoma City the city. Oh, we're going to the city like that. As if it's the, the only one. That's the only one. Yeah, they don't say like OKC or something oh, like that. No, no, no. <laughs> it's the city. It's sort of like going into town on The Walking yeah. Dead. <laughs> we're going into town. <laughs> there you go. I mean, you know what you you can have your highfalutin New York and your Miami and your San Francisco and your Los Angeles. I'm going to the city. The city. Of course, we're going to the city. Where else would you go? Well, anyway, we're here today not to talk about concerts or or the the best music of '82 or anything like that. We're going to talk about the worst of 1982. I'm going to get started with a little bomb known as Grease Two. Senior year, the whole stretch. <laughs> My old man wants me to go to junior college after grad. Yeah, nerd junior college. Hey, what are you going to do, Johnny? Sleep. Nah, I mean, what are you going to be when you grow up? A burden on society. <laughs> the year, my friends, is now 1961, and it's two years since John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John were hopelessly devoted to each other, but life marches on at Rydell High. And in this sequel to the much better original film, The Pink Ladies, 
are now led by Stephanie Zanoni, played by the great Michelle Pfeiffer, in her first major film role. The, I know. The uh, I don't think she was that cute in this movie, but but, what? but I haven't seen it, so I couldn't tell you. She's she very. She's like a stick figure of her of her of her later self. Uh, the lovable T-Birds are now led by Johnny Nagarelli, uh, played by Adrian Zemed, whose other claim to fame, of course, T.J. Hooker, also debuted in 1982. Wasn't he also and, the host of Dance Fever at one point? Uh, yeah, yeah, but I'm not going to bring that up. Right. <laughs> I just, I'm just, as I'm sure he doesn't bring up either. Although I guess if you had a choice between Dance Fever and T.J. Hooker and know. Grease 2, I mean, I don't know. What, what do you claim? What do you leave on the table there? It's a yeah, tough call. I think, I think you say T.J. Hooker is your claim to fame. Yeah, probably. Depends on the audition. I mean, if it's a Broadway musical, you definitely leave Grease 2 off. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't bad in it. And um, in a complete reversal of the of original film's plot, a fresh-faced goody-two-shoes boy, played by Maxwell Caulfield, falls for the bad girl Michelle Pfeiffer and transforms himself into a mysteriously cool motorcycle rider to woo her. And if this sounds a little dull, well, it was. But there's still something appealing, I say, about this movie. Am I wrong? I would say that you're neither wrong nor right. Is that possible? Okay. Uh, <laughs> we love it when people talk out of both sides of their mouth. This is what I do on every podcast. <laughs> I mean, I loved it when I was when I saw it. I saw it in the theater um, when I was a kid. And I recognize now, and I think some part of me even recognized then, that it was really a terrible movie. But I loved it anyway. Uh, even, even the music is just awful, but I bought the soundtrack and I listened to it over and over again. So it spoke to something in me. I don't know what that something is, but it spoke to something. Come on, everybody gather around. I'm going to show you how to knock them down. When I'm on the ball, I'm the number one. And I'm going to show you how it's done. I have a theory that it was probably it was probably beloved by a lot of people our age at the time, and I think that's probably not what they were going for. I mean, I think they were probably going for cashing in on the same people who loved the the original, but this was just not nearly as clever and not nearly as entertaining. I haven't seen no. it. I, I haven't seen it at all. But so when you say that it is popular with people our age, is that just because it had some, <clears throat> just because it was in high rotation on HBO in the afternoons, like, you know, Flash Gordon. I mean, my friends and I love movies like Flash Gordon and Cannibal Run, not because they were good movies, but because we saw them a hundred times. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, this was, this was definitely, wasn't it, Jen? I mean, I remember having this on VHS that I had like taped off of HBO. Yeah. I, I think it was kind of in rotation on there quite a bit, uh, after it came out. But, uh, I mean, I feel like the, it would maybe it appealed more to younger kids like like myself at that time, like little kids who maybe weren't quite old enough to know better uh, and just like to sing along with the songs, maybe. I mean, but I, I still think some part of me was like, they are really just trying to cash in on, on Olivia Newton-John and John Travolta, but they're not here. So it's not as good. But the, I mean, you know, I don't know if you want to talk about the songs at all and just try to illustrate how poor they were for people who don't recall but they all had this sort of like, or at least a lot of them had a sexual kind of undertone or just 
not even undertone, just blatant <laughs> tone, blatant tone, <laughs> which I didn't really even understand totally. But I knew that they were saying things that were kind of weird. Like there's an entire song about sex ed that is just bizarre. Reproduction. Uh, reproduction. Make my stamen go berserk. That's an actual <laughs> lyric from the song that somebody wrote down and thought, hey, let's put that in a movie. Did you did you walk around the house singing reproduction and we're going to score tonight? I think I did. I'm pretty sure I did. <laughs> and in fact, I think it was being played. If I my parents would videotape everything, so I believe somewhere there's a videotape of like my birthday party from that summer where that soundtrack is just being played nonstop in the background. <laughs> Comedy gold. Yeah. And I wonder why our generation is a little messed up. <laughs> um. They, you know, the popular theory is that nobody from Greece appears in Greece too, but in fact, there's seven members of the original uh, Greece uh, cast that returned this movie. Um, only two of them are the students. Can anyone name who the, who the two, two students were? Well, they would have been freshmen or sophomores in the first movie. So, so not 35, but 30. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Eugene, I feel like Eugene was in it, right? Yep, Eddie Denzin. Is he still a student? Um. I, you know, he's kind of vague. You know, he was at the senior yeah. fair in the first one, so yeah. there was this sort of implication that he was a senior. But strangely enough, two years later, there he is again. Yeah. And uh, Didi Khan as uh, Frenchie. Frenchie. Those are the only who, ones that I know, and it's amazing I know that because, like I said, I haven't seen the movie. Well, at least she makes an at least she has an excuse because she dropped out to go to beauty school, so she's right. playing catch up. Right. Although I swear she looks like she's 40 years old in the movie. Well, she probably was. <laughs> yeah. I mean, Stockard Channing was 35 when she filmed Grease. That's true. That's yeah, true. That is and, one seriously old Rizzo. Yeah. The um the other members of the cast that return are mainly the administration and the teachers like uh, President uh, Principal McGee and Coach Calhoun and a character known as Mr. Spears. What? Wow, you were in Grease too? I you was. Tell us? Strangely enough, as uh, he was like a 57-year-old teacher at the time, this gray-haired teacher, he has like one line in the uh, first movie and no lines in the second movie. Hey, you kids. <laughs> no, he says something about having one of the T-Birds in his class again in the first movie. And in the second movie, you only see him because he's returned from a nervous breakdown. At the very end of the movie, he falls into the, uh, the little moat at the luau. So then as now, Steve, you serve mainly as comic relief? Yes. Yes, and, it's, and, it's, and, and, and then as now, it's better that I not talk so much. Oh, I don't know about that, boss. Yeah, I can't talk. This cold is killing me still. I feel like I'm swallowing every other word. But um, the film has a uh, 24% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. Reaction was so bad that the studio canceled plans for two more sequels. There were supposed to be two more movie sequels making four greases and – a TV series that was supposed to be spun off of all this mess. We should start a Kickstarter to make Grease 4. Just skip Grease 3 and go right to Grease 4. Um, set it in like the early 70s. <laughs> you think this is going to work just because it worked for Veronica Mars this week? I don't know. Uh, hey, you know, no. I, I'm, I'm setting the bar really low here. Yeah. <laughs> we'll see if we can get some people interested. If not, then we just abandon it. I wonder how many people are still alive from, I mean. No, no, I don't want any of those people back. <laughs> 
Can we still sit it at Rydell High? Well, of course. We'll go, I'll, you know, I'll go over, uh, what's, it's Whitt- Whittier High School. It's Whittier High School is the, a lot of the exteriors. So that's not too far from here. I'll go do some uh, B-roll over there. And we'll... <laughs> Cause nothing bad can happen if you show up at a high school with a camera and just start filming. Yeah, no, I, this windowless white van I'm driving. No, no. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's just all my time. equipment's in the back. No, no problem. Everything's cool. Yeah. Schools encourage that sort of thing. Yeah. Yeah. My exactly. Experience. Okay, I think we've buried Greece too enough. Uh, Jen, what do you want to defend among the pop culture bombs of 1982? Well, the uh, thing that I would like to defend to a certain degree is the E.T. video game. Now, you know, in 1982, we all recall that E.T. the Extraterrestrial was released, and it was a massive, massive hit, one of the great box office hits of all time. And so, of course, when that happens, and especially a film like that that is sort of targeted to kids uh, to some extent. Sort of. Sort of. uh, Sad, but still targeted to kids. uh, It spawns all this sort of merchandise. And so there were E.T. stuffed animals and E.T. books and E.T. albums and E.T. breakfast cereal. And I bought, I would say, 85 to 90 percent of all the crap that was being released at the time. And one of the things was a video game, a home video game that was released by Atari to be played on the Atari 2600. Now, just a little back history on this. Uh, you know, this this video game is sort of widely known as the worst video game ever of yeah, all time. It, yeah, it's notorious. Yes. And, and here's part of the reason why. Uh, because I guess they were negotiating for the rights to uh, to to make the video game and that took a while. And so they didn't actually get the rights and the contract or whatever sewn up until the end of July of 82. And so they wanted it out by the Christmas season, which meant that they had to basically develop the game and create it in, you know, a two month period. Yeah. Cause they have to get it manufactured, you know, boxed up and, and all that jazz. Right. Which isn't very much time to come up with a concept, figure out just actually how it's going to be executed and then do the actual technical work to make it happen, especially with the tools that they were working with at the time, which were extremely primitive. So they called on this guy, Howard Ben Wishaw, who was kind of one of the hot shots at Atari, and he had developed other games for them in the past, including the Raiders of the Lost Ark video game, which was actually very well received. That's a good game, if I remember correctly. I mean, I haven't played it in 30 years, but I remember thinking it was pretty groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, I mean, I never actually played that one either, but that's sort of the reputation that it has. And and Spielberg specifically said, I want the guy who did Raiders to do E.T. So, unfortunately, E.T. did not quite turn out like Raiders. And at this point, uh, I would like to read a short passage from an article about the E.T. video game that was written by the A.V. Club just last year, just to give you a, a sense of how people feel about this game. Adapting a cinematic special effects breakthrough like E.T. for video games using the blunt caveman-like tools at the disposal of video game makers in 1982 was like (laughs) trying to recreate the Mona Lisa using finger paint. But the attempt didn't have to be so ugly. It's as if Atari put John Hamm into a cloning machine and spat out an exact cross between Kevin Federline and Spencer Pratt. (laughs) Or, in a slightly more plausible analogy, it would be like Tom Hanks' genetic material begetting the smirking personage of Chet Hayes. Which is Tom Hanks' son, and we won't talk about Chet Hayes right now. But the point is, it just didn't turn out so well. And I don't know, did either of you guys ever play this game? 
No, I'm, I mean, I'm familiar with it mainly because I'm familiar with the video gaming industry. And it's, like I said, it's notorious. It's, you know, widely cited as one of the, you know, main reasons that the video game industry collapsed in 83. Right. Um, yeah. But, uh, I, I don't know what the gameplay was like. I don't, I've, I don't think I've ever seen or been in the physical presence of a ET cartridge. So. Did you have to use the paddles or the, the joysticks? No, it was a joystick game. And actually, I played it. I got the ColecoVision that year, and they made an attachment that you could put on the ColecoVision that would allow you to also play Atari games. Really? Yes. I had had no idea they did that. That's really cool. Yeah. So I was playing actually with the ColecoVision, uh, their version of a joystick, which is slightly different from the traditional one. But, you know, that was the least of its problems. The the objective of the game was you're supposed to collect pieces of E.T.'s phone so you could call his home planet and then he could get to go home, which is, you know, paralleling the movie, obviously. But the problem was that y- you had to sort of look at all these icons at the top of your screen to figure out when you might be kind of near one of these pieces. And then you had to basically fall into a pit. You had to make E.T. fall into a pit to collect one of the pieces. And then you would extend his neck to levitate back out. But then if you <laughs> got out God. and you and you rubbed against like a tree or a bush after you got out of the uh, the pit, you would fall immediately back in. So there were times where would, you would spend 15 minutes just getting out of, in and out of a pit, which may or may not have had a piece of a phone that might be useful to you. Uh, so <laughs> that sounds pretty compelling, I must say. Yeah, yeah. Familiar, even. And then randomly, <laughs> randomly, uh, a dude in a trench coat who was supposed to be from the FBI would just come on screen and, and steal pieces of your phone away. So then you had to go back and fall in the pit 87 times again to get one piece of a phone back. Mm. So it was, it was, I think very frustrating, especially for, for younger kids. Uh, and it wasn't necessarily intuitive at all. And so what ended up happening, uh, I was not one of the people who returned my game. As a matter of fact, I still have it, but a lot of people got so ticked off. They're just like, take this stupid thing back. And so they returned them. And supposedly there were so many returns there's there's this urban legend which has never been fully verified that there are tons of ET video cartridges buried in a landfill in New Mexico, uh, ironically not that far from Roswell. Yeah, I so, mean, I'd heard, that, I'd heard they were crushed and poured concrete over them. Right. That's yes. the version of it I've heard. Jeez, that is the version what, I've what? heard too. Oh my god, I've not played it. I do actually own a working Atari 2600 here. I paid eighty dollars for it on eBay like two months ago. And with that, I got, I think, five cartridges, one of, none of which was E.T., but one of which was also another video game, which I think came out in 1982, uh, for Journey Escape. Oh, yeah. I had that one, too. And I played it this morning, and you know, it has a little MIDI version of uh, Don't Stop Believing and stuff like that. so bad. Oh, it's, that, it's, oh, it hurts my to... ears just to think about it. <laughs> You have to guide. You have to guide the band members past groupies and uh, uh, surly agents, and um, to get to the scarab vehicle so you can uh, take off, presumably to get to the next show. And I played it, I think, for maybe 20 minutes. I never got past the first stage, so I, I don't know what I'm doing wrong. I don't have the instructions for any of them. I think that so. game is a little more straightforward, though. At least you understand what you're supposed to be doing. It's just a matter of like actually making it happen. The one part about that game I don't understand is the guy who looks like the Kool-Aid man who just randomly runs on screen sometime. I'm like, what are, why is the Kool-Aid guy in the journey that's game? The, I, think, I think that's the surly agent, isn't it? But why does he look like the guy from Kool-Aid? It's just weird. Hey, 
Yeah. It is. It's a strange thing. I couldn't. I can't make up. I, it's keeping some sort of score up there, and there's a little counter. I used to own the video game back in the day. Well, and, isn't it like you, know. you have you have money and you run into people and they take your money and then some people will you know if you find the right guy they'll give you some more money. Right, and uh, they can you can run past people without getting like assaulted for a certain yeah. period of time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange. Yeah. It's a strange game, but it's I have Pitfall too, so I play that and oh. I play uh, Pitfall is awesome. Yeah, yeah, Pitfall is awesome. And I think I also have Pac-Man and Asteroids and Breakout, Super Breakout maybe. I mean, Pitfall was a great – I mean, that was an Activision game. That was a great example of third-party development for the for the 2600. Mm-hmm. Um, Activision had some just really – you know, they did way more with the console than I think Atari did. Yeah. yeah. I, I used to remember owning all the M-Network sport games too at the time. But uh, back then, I mean, the sporting games were notoriously awful for Atari. <laughs> Yeah, I remember the 2600 football. It's like, oh, oh those three blobs are my blobs. I have no idea where the actual football is. Uh, Brad, your turn to defend a pop culture bomb from 1982. What do you choose? I'm here to tell you about the fine television program, Joni Loves Chachi. We are going to do fine at this audition. We're going to get the job. Yeah, but Chachi, what if we don't? My parents are going to make me go back to Milwaukee, and I'll never be able to see you again. I won't let that happen. You won't? I won't. <laughs> promise? I promise. Sure. Sure. Okay. So, uh, Joan Loves Chachi premiered as a mid-season replacement in March of 82. And uh, <clears throat> does anyone remember this fine television show? I was a, a huge fan, avid watcher. Did you have a crush on Chachi? Of course I did. Brad? Brad, did you have a, a crush on Joni? <sighs> no. No, and you know, seeing how <laughs> seeing how things went there, I think I made the right choice. Good choice. Oh, oh. that's not nice. I'm, Poor just, Aaron oh, Ryan. I'm just saying I don't think I'm the right person for Aaron. <laughs> <laughs> you are. You have money. You could give her a home and a place to live. I have some money, uh, <laughs> but I also have two teenagers, so that's that situation is fleeting. Um, so Joni loves Chachi. It's a spinoff of Happy Days, right? Uh, let's name a few other Happy Days spinoffs. Mork and Mindy. Mindy, good one. Uh, Laverne and Shirley. Uh, those are kind of the big two, right? There are Logan's Run. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty close. <clears throat> it's interesting because at the time, uh, ABC was building their schedule around uh, Happy Days and its spinoffs. I mean, they're like, we have this golden property and we have to get as much out of it as we possibly can. So they were doing a lot of work to tie shows back to Happy Days. So there's a couple of shows that are called out as, if you do some research, which I tried to do a little bit of, they uh, call out as um, spinoffs, but really they're not so much spinoffs as they're shows that they had a character make a promotional appearance on Happy Days one week before their show premiered. So in this one, Joni and Chachi move to Chicago and they're trying to make it as musicians, right? Um, and I watched several episodes of this just to do some homework, and I, no, I don't think I saw it when it was first on, but there's, what I realized after a couple episodes was ABC was basically making a Disney Channel show. That's an accurate description, actually. You know, That's it's good. It's a sitcom with basic characters, and they're in a band, so they get to do a couple of numbers every week. So, you know, it's just like Hannah Montana. It's just <laughs> Far less tattoos. Yeah, That's 30, good. 30 years earlier. So the rest of the cast, you've got some other kind of carryover cast. You've got um, Ellen Travolta as Chachi's mom. Uh, uh, she's done a lot of work over the years on the TV. Uh, you know, she was on Charles in Charge. She's in General Hospital. Um, 
the the funny the character I thought was the funniest was uh, Al, who used to own Al's Diner, has married Chachi's mom and is now uh, Scott Baio's, you know, Chachi's character's dad. And so there's a lot of comedy around that where he's like trying to be a good dad and trying to figure out how to be a dad. Now, didn't Al open a restaurant in Chicago? Yeah, he like, opens a restaurant, and they live over the restaurant, and the band plays in the restaurant. So that's... I just, I just <laughs> want to point out, like, didn't Chachi burn down Arnold's? Like, why would he open up a restaurant and then be like, Chachi, why don't you perform here every day and potentially light this place on fire? Well, like, it just seems like a huge risk. You know, Jen, the the restaurant business is a really tough one to get started. You might want a quick get out of jail free cup, <laughs> just in case things aren't going the way you want. That's a good point. All right. Uh, the other character that I was surprised to see was Art Metrano, who plays uh, Lieutenant Mauser in the Police Academy movies, is Uncle Rico, <laughs> their band manager. Band manager, jeez. But, uh, you know, it's a it's a pretty harmless harmless uh, sitcom. The one that I kind of remember the plot from, they, you know, they get a they get a gig doing, you know, Uncle Rico gets him a gig doing a, playing a party for the most influential person in the Chicago music scene, and they're all excited about it. And <laughs> Chachi is you know riding the band really hard and yelling at him, and they all get upset, and he has to apologize, and they go to play the gig, and it's for the you know for this guy's six year old daughter, and he's not even there, and so they're playing a kid's birthday party, you know, and oh, <clears throat> and then afterwards they're all you know oh, I'm sorry I was oh it's okay you know. Do you want some cake? Okay. And the, you know, that's kind of the end. So, oh, you know, it's, it, it's, it's not bad. It's not, it, it's not horrible. I, you know, it, it has this pall over it, right? You know, because it wasn't, it didn't do well, but it's not bad television. It, it didn't hurt. It was not, you know, it wasn't atrocious. It's just, well, yeah. It's just nothing, and, no, there, there. And you gotta remember in 1982, the bar has yet to be set that high. I mean, Nowadays, you know, thanks to the you know cable, you have stuff like you know Downton Abbey and Mad Men and Breaking Bad. But back then, probably Happy Days was probably considered to be. Yeah, I think Happy Days was probably on its way down at that. Well, no, probably about it, but it was yeah. still it was still a juggernaut in the schedule. And they yeah. had had so much success spinning things off before with Laverne and Shirley and Mark and Mindy. They must have just figured, hey, this this is a no-brainer. We'll spin this off because everybody loves Joni and Chachi. Let's just say it in the title. Yeah. Let's put love and Joni and Chachi in the title and then everyone will love it. I liked, I liked Scott Baio back at the time. I remember, do you anyone remember the movie Zapped? Oh, of course. Of course, yeah. I have it. I have it on DVD. I wow. swear to God. I haven't seen that in forever. And I used to have the soundtrack to it and everything. It has it's it's totally what's on the uh, soundtrack? Any anything anyone would recognize? No, no, it's all originals that were done for the soundtrack. It's uh, real smaltzy, uh, ballady songs. You'd know them if you heard them. And, we'll, and I swear to God, we will do a Zapped show one day. But um, it's one that you can't show it to anybody because it's 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 a hard. I wouldn't say it's a hard R. I mean, it's not like Death Wish or anything, but it it does have its share of uh, you know. Frontal nudity. Yeah, that's what I remember about it as a 15 year old. Yeah, I wasn't like, allowed hey. to watch that. Right. It's like, hey, it's a baseball. It's a baseball game. Let's have female nudity. Hey, it's a school dance. Let's have female nudity. But I, I think the thing that's disturbing to me about Scott Bayo is I remember seeing his uh, reality show on VH1 a few years ago where he confessed, and I watched every single show for some reason. But there's there's a confession that I guess uh, Chachi and uh, Joni got together in real life. I mean, Aaron Moran was Scott Baio's first. Yeah, uh. I, I find that like weirdly touching. 
I, I guess that's life imitating uh, art. As opposed to weirdly touching. <laughs> as opposed to touching weirdly. I find it every possible meaning of that phrase. That's how I react to that information. So funny. So like I said, the show was on in the spring as a mid-season replacement. It did pretty well. But when it came back full-time in the fall, it got just clobbered. And it got clobbered because it was up against – anybody remember what it was up against on uh, – uh, Cheers? The A-Team. Oh. Um. Yeah, that's a tough one to overcome. Yeah, so and kind of an interesting, uh, another interesting thing I uncovered was ABC felt like the show was losing too much of its lead-in audience, and so and this is kind of a, you know, this is, you know, nowadays if that happens in the third week, a show will get canceled, right? Or or maybe even during the premiere, but uh, you know, back then they let it run through Christmas, and then I guess they played the last couple episodes in May sweeps, and that was it. And they folded those characters back into Happy Days, which I can't think of a. Another ex, you know, example of a, a spinoff where it didn't go and the characters went back. It's like, you know, if Frasier ended up back on Cheers. Right. Huh. That is yeah, bizarre. I, yeah, I don't, I don't know if I can think of another example of that either. That is pretty unusual. And, and I mean, do, do, the, do the characters, do we ever know the fate of the characters? I mean, do they get married someday? Don't they get married? Yeah, 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 they get married in the last episode of Happy Days, I believe. The yeah. finale was their wedding. I think that's right. Oh, man. We're old. I can't, I don't remember that at all. So one other, one other, uh, since we're talking urban legends here, one other urban legend about Joni Loves Chachi that you might have heard is that Joni Loves Chachi was the highest rated American program in Korea. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that that is not the case. Aww. But first we should talk about why people think it was the highest rated American program, program in Korea. Why do they think that? Well, Jen, it's because Chachi is similar to the pronunciation of the Korean word for penis. Oh, mm. Makes so a lot of Joni, sense Joni loves well, penis. Well, you know, hey, <laughs> we already established that like five minutes ago. Yeah, the but whole Scott Bayo thing. This was, was just fun to say. <laughs> People didn't know that then. This is new information. <laughs> what is the correct pronunciation of penis in Korean? I could not say, sir. I'm not okay. Korean. I have some Korean friends, but they're not here to ask. Um, so Joni Loves Chachi was not aired in Korea except in English on Armed Forces Korean Network. So it's hard to imagine that that many Korean households had access to it at the time. Um, so sorry, good story. But in this case, I'm going to have to let the truth get in the way of it. You know what I don't want to get in the way of today? The Seggies. Ah, the mystical refrain of reader mailbag. And uh, as is tradition, our guest host has volunteered to read the letter. Yay, here I go. It's from Weary Bear in Orlando. Hi, guys. On Steve's recommendation, I watched Valley Girl Saturday night. I found the movie mildly entertaining and somewhat humorous, but if I were honest, it's not a particularly well-made movie. It's, it felt very amateurism. I think they mean... Just amateurish, but we'll let that go. Like it was made for a college film class. Also, Deborah and Nick didn't do a very good job displaying emotion or love or cultural tension. It was obvious neither one of them have ever in their personal lives felt anything, quote, deep or, quote, painful. I also wish the main story was more fleshed out and less superficial. Thirdly, what's the deal with the Mrs. Robinson bit? Wholly unnecessary. 
I think John Hughes did a better job at portraying teenage angst and heartache in his Pretty in Pink and Sixteen Candles movies. Still, this movie did have a great soundtrack, and I wouldn't mind having a couple of those cool songs. As an aside, if you ever happen to do anything show-oriented in the Orlando area, I wouldn't mind showing up. Let's keep this puppy moving. Weary Bear. Wow. Hmm. He disses the Great Valley Girl. I'm, I'm about to do something that I always hated it when uh, Sean Daly would do to me. I'm going to jump all over Weary Bear, and he's got no <laughs> way to say anything back about it. Aww. The man is wrong. God, how dare he diss Valley Girl? Well, I, I mean, I guess I can see if he hasn't seen it, and uh, let's just assume he's in the, you know, say, 40s age range. Right, uh, right. You come to come to this, you know, for your first time when you're in your 40s. It's not it's not too far to reach to think, you know, you're not going to maybe connect with the material as well. Well, yeah. But, again, I think he's wrong. I think they did a great job of displaying emotional love, cultural potential, whatever, as teenagers. Well, yeah. don't have a lot of life experience. Uh, I, I think there's also a lot – there's always an inherent danger – of seeing an 80s classic for the first time 30 years later. It it just doesn't work. It's It's the same reason It's hard to take that perspective, yeah. Right. I watched Goonies for the first time a couple years ago. I didn't enjoy it. You know, I'm I'm, uh, making the grade I watched for the first time a couple years ago. I didn't enjoy it. But so I can see where something like Valley Girl would pop up. You know, it's aimed at 14-year-olds in the year 1983. It's not aimed at 45-year-olds in the year 2013. Yeah. It's also kind of tough to compare it to the John Hughes movies, which are sort of the gold standard of sure. teen films from that era, or even other. There were so many great movies of that kind from that era, and I would say that Valley Girl isn't maybe quite as good as those. Um, but that's also kind of an unfair comparison because it's just yeah, that's I mean, expecting a little too much. Wasn't Valley Girl shot in like two weeks? Oh yeah, I mean, you know? I, I think it only it only meant to it only really aspired to be a B movie. I mean, it, it didn't really have any aspirations of being fine cinema. It it was something that the studio rushed into creation to capitalize on the popularity of of uh, the the you know, the Zappa song. Yeah, and so the script was rushed, the casting was rushed. They got really lucky though, in the sense that they got Deborah Foreman. It ends up being her signature role and it ends up being the very first starring role for Nick Cage who had also already appeared in uh, Fast Times and uh, Rumblefish but you know it's it's just one of the and, and it, it connects to me and I think everyone knows the story because you know Deborah Foreman and I had the great breakup episode podcast conversation and stuff and uh, you know I had that great my great Spando ballet story from the 80s takes place on the night that I recorded uh, Valley Girl on tape. So to me, it's like ingrained in my DNA. But you know, I totally get the fact that maybe somebody wouldn't wouldn't appreciate it now. But at least he does appreciate the amazing soundtrack. That's true. He does mm-hmm. give it something. And and he's 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 weary. So you know. Yeah, he's very 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 weary. Yeah. Aren't uh, we all? De- Deborah Foreman actually ha- the soundtrack for that movie was was a very limited release, and it was just a I think it was just an EP that had six songs on it. Um. Over the years, Deborah Foreman has kept a copy of it, and she just auctioned it off on eBay last week. Really? And if you were the winning bid, and I know at one point I checked it, the, the winning bids were, I think at one point the bidding was over six hundred dollars for it. But if you were the winning bid, she would, you know, you got a personal autograph on it too. Oh, that's cool. Nice. So if you go to her, if you go to her eBay page, you'll see she's she's auctioning off a lot of her Valley Girl stuff now, like a lot of movie stills and other. Stuff that she's held on to for years and years. Excellent. Cool. Excellent. 
As always, if you want to send us an email, uh, we have those really nifty new email addresses that nobody likes to use. So it's Steve in the eighties at gmail.com and Brad in the eighties at gmail.com. And if you want to go old school, it's still sit eighties at gmail.com. What's happening, hot stuff? Uh, by the sound of the gong, it must be time for mystery movie moment. Hey, I'll play a snippet of a movie from the 80s. If you can get it right, Brad will say your name in our next podcast, which is scheduled for 12 weeks from today. <laughs> 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 it's not our fault that it took us so long to podcast. Well, did you know the last, the last of, show we did? was? Fault. It is kind of our fault. We recorded this entire show three weeks ago, but the audio levels were so messed up. My fault that we have to record it again. And then, but I think uh, we're doing a better job. And we're then sickness, job. you know, I've been down with the plague for about a week and a half here. No kidding. Oh, my gosh. And let's be honest, this is all my fault. <laughs> well, I don't, I'm, I'm not going to lay any blame. I'm not willing, willing to lay any blame yet, but I will send you an invoice. Yeah. All right. <laughs> Pay attention. Here's the clip from our last show. Can't you see this horse loves me? <laughs> I had a gal do that to me. It didn't make her my wife. Yes, I'm told that Silverado, yet another 80s classic I've never seen. That is just so wrong. I don't like westerns, and I don't like period pieces. This is a western and a period piece. I think most westerns are, by definition, period pieces. Unless Otherwise, it's a modern, day. Just, uh, so, modern day so, western. So what is... Uh, Raising it, Arizona would be a western. Uh, that's Ben Spearcy. <laughs> Which also I don't like. Anorexic. Now, Silverado is a great movie. It is just it's beautifully shot. It's just a love letter to uh, to the Western genre, and there are some great performances in it. Let's solve this once and for all. Jen, have you seen Silverado? I haven't. Ah, see? What is wrong with you people? Victory! <laughs> <laughs> I'm not a huge Western fan either, although I have come to like them more recently, so I should probably go back and watch Silverado. Give this a look. It's it's like I said, it's just a love letter. There's nothing too complicated about it. But uh, it? Uh, Kevin Klein, um, John Cleese has a great small role in it. It's a fish called Wanda. That's that's what you're talking about. I, yeah, it's a fish called. <laughs> the subtitle is a fish called Western. Um, nice. Gosh, uh, Danny Glover's in it. Uh, oh, who's the other guy? Uh, it's Kevin Costner. Early. Yeah, I was going to say Costner was in there. Early Kevin Costner, and uh, I can't remember the name of the main other main character. I have a theory about Kevin Costner. Here it comes. Here comes <laughs> the science. A, I have a theory that Kevin Costner never made a bad movie in the eighties. Mm. Mm. I have to go to IMDb to see if I can debunk that. Yeah, let's look it up. Let's look it up. I'm looking it up right now. Kevin Costner. Da, 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 da. Malibu Hot Summer. Okay, I didn't... <laughs> I forgot about that one. I'm going to reserve judgment on Malibu Hot Summer because I do like the title. Uh, I did not see Chasing Dreams. Scott Glenn. That's his name. Scott Glenn. Night, he's in Night Shift as frat boy number one. He's in Night Shift? Yeah. Have we done a Night Shift show? No. Um, the, well, let's see what else is he in. Fandango. Yeah, I don't remember Fandango very well. Uh, American Flyers, which I love. Oh, that's a great movie. Yeah, I think you know what? That's a solid. That actually might be science. He really uh, wasn't in very many bad movies in in that decade. The Untouchables, No Way Out, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, The Big Chill as a as a corpse. I mean, come on. Yeah, that's true. Uh, that's not bad. No, he even starts the '90s pretty good with uh, Revenge, which I think is a great movie. No Way Out was in the '80s. I thought No Way Out was in the '90s. No, No Way Out was 1987. Oh, God, I love that movie. 
I know. It blew my mind the first time I saw I know, it. I know. That's one of those. I was like, what? You, is, you walk out of the movie in the parking lot and your mouth is like, oh, what? Huh? <laughs> so, okay, that's, that's my, that's my, uh, Kevin Costner theory. Read the winners before we forget. Oh, them. oh, right. Winners. Winners include Kevin Winch, Bart B. Mankopf in West Des Moines, Iowa, Diana, aka Mrs. Alpha Geek, Robert Michou, Mr. Big W, Scott in New Hampshire, Paul from A Turn to the 80s, and winner emeritus, Stuart O'Neill from Fort Smith, Arkansas. Pay attention. Here's this week's mystery clip. Tomorrow. There's no tomorrow. There is no tomorrow. If you know it, email us at steventhe80s at gmail.com or bradinthe80s at gmail.com and tune in next week to find out if you're a wiener. Ah, the mystical refrain of Name That 80s Tune. Hey, I will play a snippet of a song from the 80s. And um, if you can get that Eurotrash song right, again, Brad uh, will sob a little bit to himself and uh, he'll be forced to read your name. <laughs> forced to read your name. Uh, pay attention. Here's the clip from our last show. That's right. That's Blind Vision by Blamange. I thought it was time to return to our Euro trash roots here on Name That 80s Tune. Jen, how do you feel about the Euro trash? Uh, I'm not a huge fan of it, I have to say. <gasps> what? For uh, seeing? You know, you're doing so well, Jen. <laughs> I'm sorry. It was all going so but well. But she has seen them in concert three times. <laughs> 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 at the cap center yeah oh yeah from the loogie this is the sort of band that would not <laughs> shock me i would not be shocked if this is the sort of band that pops up on the live 80s tour in las vegas yeah this year. they fit the model right they had a couple big hits that everyone recognizes when they get played in the club uh, but other than that they haven't been heard from in 20 years yeah in fact if you haven't been following us on facebook uh the lost 80s tour is the big get together event that we had a couple years ago in Las Vegas, where oh who was it? It was um, Flock of Seagulls, Win in Rome, the Motels, uh, Gene loves Jezebel, uh, the uh, Motels, uh, Animotion, Animotion was there, and literally it was like what a four hour concert. Every band got up there and played three songs. Yeah, it was pretty funny. And then they got off stage, and another band would hop on, and then get off stage while we drank twenty dollar drinks, Bud, Bud Lime, and an <laughs> aluminum bottle. And uh, sat there, you know, in the 100 degree Vegas temperature, out by the pool, listening to these great acts. So they're doing it again this year. It's August yeah. August 10th, is it? I believe that's right. Yeah, it's yeah. at the Mandalay Bay Beach, which is actually a really cool venue. The, the stage. Yeah, we is, make it sound like it wasn't it was a good fun. time, but I think we had a great time. It was a great time. Like, I mean, just Flock of Seagulls was just like, ugh. By the time they came on board, I was out of money for alcohol. The hangover was starting to head set in already. You know, Flock of Seagulls does not have the goods anymore. Chase Squires has already passed out. Yeah, on the yeah, his eyes had already rolled back in his head, and so I'd already snuck off back to the hotel suite to to eat hot dogs or something like that. I have no idea. So, but we we might be going again. So keep watching the blog and keep watching Facebook um, to see. They're slowly starting to announce the lineup, and we're hoping that there'll be some bands from the Valley Girl soundtrack that'll be included this year. Um, in the meantime, Brad, read our – Let me give you the winners, 1.2 winners. <clears throat> Steve, our winners this week include Charles from Yorktown, Chris in Palm Springs, 
and Gabriel Daigle. Oh, and lest I forget, winner emeritus, Stuart O'Neill from Fort Smith, Arkansas. Pay attention. Here's this week's Mystery Tune. If you know it, email us at steventhe80s at gmail.com or bradinthe80s at gmail.com and tune in next week to find out if you're a wiener. Uh, it's our favorite time. It's time for Stuck in Stuck in the 80s, uh, our little tribute to the uh, podcasting yesteryear of Stuck in the 80s where we play a clip suggested by a reader. Um, and this week's clip comes from episode 129, new releases from 80s bands from a few years ago. I think this was suggested by Tor Hansen, I want to say. Yes, yes. So Tor Hansen loves the bit where Sean Daly, the late Sean Daly, um, went off on a rail um, explaining why R.E.M. is such a hated band to him, why they have no importance in his life, and why they have no relevance to the 80s. Here we go. Ah, uh, yes, our pick for this uh, album, Supernatural Super Serious, the first cut from the album. You like it, Shanzi? Look at you grinning. Let me tell you my three most hated bands. Are you ready? Number one, uh, The Doors. I- Number two... Spandau Ballet. That's not cool. That's not cool. Why you gotta, why you gotta do that every time? Why don't you play a boogada boogada boogada? <laughs> and my third most hated band, R.E.M. Why? Because Michael Stipe is a squirmy little homunculus with dumb blue paint on his face, speaking gibberish. Only Matsuela. Prita. Prita. I don't connect with Michael Stipe. I never have. Yeah, in college, I shouted out Leonard Bernstein at the bars. I did all that crap. I don't know. I don't feel it. I've never liked R.E.M. Not even the early stuff. I mean, Life's Rich Pageant. That was a great album. Koyahuga. What'd you say? Koyahuga, man. It's a great <laughs> song. You're an idiot. I want to slap you. I just want to slap your fat face. God. <laughs> I don't like R.E.M. I don't. And now as a music critic, you, you, have you ever had to cover him? Uh, I've never seen them live, but I've had to write about their albums before. Did you give them good reviews? I don't think so. I try to avoid it. I usually have somebody else write about them. I don't yeah. like R.E.M. Now, when you had I do it, not connect to, to Michael Stipe. Did you review this album? I did not. Who did you give it to to review? Instead of your pal Spearsy. I don't remember. Maybe Stephanie Hayes? Yeah, Stephanie Hayes. <laughs> why, are you, why are you grinning like that? that a, why would you do that? Why would you did not she do like that? the album? Did Hayes yeah, she like did it? like the album. She was afraid of all the... REM freaks out there attacking her. No, it's a good album. People like it. It sold. Over it sold seven copies. Over three hundred thousand copies worldwide so far. In the what? Three hundred thousand copies in the first week worldwide. Uh, who cares? You want to back up your hatred? Use a couple facts in the process. Our readers will be amazed. What facts? You know what? I put that album on. I actually had. I put the album on in my house, and like it, it was like a parody album, an REM parody. It was instantly forgettable. Does anybody agree with Mr. Daly? <laughs> yeah, he's wrong. I mean, I, I understand that he doesn't like the band, and that's cool. People don't like everything that I like and vice versa. But, you know, take the chip off your shoulder, dude. Just don't buy the records or how, change the station when it comes on. I don't understand how you can be a music critic and not like R.E.M. or not at least appreciate R.E.M. Not under, yeah. 
Well, and there's also, I think, a difference between maybe personally liking something, but also conceding that it was relevant and had a huge impact because those are two different things. Uh, and I think it's hard to argue that REM had an enormous impact, sure. whether you like them or not. I, I was stunned. They were always on my bucket list of bands I wanted to see play live. I never got a chance to do it. I was stunned. Oh, no way. Mm. Yeah, Jen probably saw them when she was 7, 12, 13, <laughs> 14, 18, 19. <laughs> And they played her birthday for the 21st, 22nd, 23rd birthdays, right? <laughs> no, I, I saw them a couple times, but not until I was much older. How were they? Were they good? Yeah, they're very good. Very much so. Yeah. I I mean, I think I was at um, Document, I think is the album I have that I listened mm-hmm. to, or Life's Rich Pageant might be the album that I listen to nonstop over and over again, you know, when I'm in a weird mood. That You just can't sort of just dismiss them that way. But, you know, Daly was weird. He I mean, He also hated the doors. So, you know. There you go. So if you have a suggestion for Stuck in the Stuck in the 80s, please email us. You know the email addresses by now. Don't forget to include the episode number or else Brad's going to spend a lot of time looking for that clip. Actually, what's going to happen is I'm not going to spend any time <laughs> looking for the clip. So, oh, yeah, man. please send us an episode number. I don't mind scrubbing <laughs> through the old ones. I like listening to them too, but uh, I'm not going to listen to all 280 to find that one time where Sean says, Corn dog. What is it? It's still the survival game. Let's play. That's when with the marble on the board wins. Your turn. Move a lever. I'm going to block that strategy. I'm out. Me too. Uh-oh. I win. I'm the sole survivor. Stay alive. The survival game from Milton Bradley. It's here. The E.T. board game. Now you can pretend to help E.T. go home. Danger! Sometimes you can hide. You're safe, E.T. And sometimes you can fly. Wow. Now the communicator's ready. E.T. phone home. <laughs> to the spaceship. The one that helps E.T. the most wins. Also sold separately, the E.T. card game. E.T. board game from Parker Brothers. Some assembly required. time for one last question so here it is let's say there actually is a hot tub time machine is 1982 the year that you would choose to return to let's hear it bradley um i mean i suppose it would be on the list but i don't think it would be the year i would choose to return to um i think i want to i think i would want to wait until i was a little older to return if i'm picking a time to return to you're gonna be practical is what you're saying well, I, I'm not saying I don't want to go back to the 80s. I'm just saying I, I'm not sure I want to go back when I'm 15 
and have limited, you know, means of transportation and limited financial means. You're being practical. I guess I'm being practical. Um, and I mean, <clears throat> you know, is 82 the flower of 80s culture? Uh, I think it's starting there. What everyone kind of thinks of as the pop, when you talk about pop culture in the 80s, which is what we pretend to do every couple of weeks or so here on this, I think that, you know, it's really kind of, it's at full speed in 1982, uh, having kind of been building up steam for, you know, 80 through 81. But I'm not sure that's the summit of it. So I'm thinking I would want to come back in like 83, 84, maybe. Huh. What about you, Jen? Well, there's one reason I want to say that I wouldn't return to 82, and that's because in addition to having obvious love affairs with E.T. and Grease 2 during the summer of 1982, I also saw Poltergeist that summer. Ah. And because of that, I, I, this is not even a lie. I did not fall asleep before 6 a.m. For, for the entire summer. Like I was <laughs> up all night, just completely terrified, and I just – would not want to relive that again. You son of a bitch, you moved the cemetery, but you left the bodies, didn't you? You son of a bitch, you left the bodies and you only moved the headstones! You only moved the headstones! But if you knew now that it was, you know, just a movie with Coach, maybe it wouldn't be so scary. <laughs> I don't know, man. That still scares me. It scared yeah. my parents. I mean, I it's don't think they creepy. would watch. They wouldn't watch the, uh, you know, back when show the, the TV would actually go off the air and they would play the national anthem. After that movie, they were like never <laughs> leaving the TV on again. A sign off. Yeah, but yeah. Seen it, TV stations don't sign off anymore, so the kids these days don't know what we're talking yeah, it's about. A, when did yeah. that stop? Does anyone know when that stopped? It stopped when TV stations realized they could make even a little bit of money selling infomercials overnight. <laughs> it was sometime later in the decade, I think. Right? Yeah. Might have been. I mean, even I mean, yeah, even into the '90s, there were local stations that would sign off. Um, but now, yeah, they can make they can make enough money to cover the transmitter costs by running infomercials. So they do. If if, if I if I could go back again, I I also would not choose '82. I would pick um, 1985, and I would make it my mission in life to be at Wembley Stadium to see Live Aid. Uh, Wembley, not JFK. Oh, no, I not JFK at all. Yeah, that's the right choice. If you're going to a venue for that, it's Wembley. The lineup was so much better at, at Wembley. I love the Euro trash. <laughs> <laughs> it all comes but, but, back but around. Wait. But Duran Duran wasn't there. They were in Philadelphia. No. they were, were they? Are you sure? Yeah, yes. they were in Philadelphia, and well, that was the last time they played together for a very, very, very long time. Right? Well, yes, it was. Simon's voice broke during View to a Kill, and that was like – It did. You could see the whole band crumble apart microseconds after that happened. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But Power Station was good that day. Oh. Uh, <laughs> hey, that's all we got for this week. We hope you enjoyed the pop culture uh, bombs of 1982 as much as we enjoy uh, reliving them and trying to pretend that we actually saw them. Um, Jen, I really uh, appreciate you coming on the show. It's w- w- way too long in happening. Well, thank you very much for having me. It was really fun. We hope you come back when we do uh, Pop Culture Bombs of 1983, where we discuss uh, such gems as Octopussy and Superman 3. Oh, fantastic. The Richard Pryor one, if I recall, right? Uh, yeah. Yep. yep. <laughs> oh, God. Brad, excellent job, my friend. It's all in the editing. Let's stay healthy this time and do another show uh, while we're still young. Bye. 
Yeah, I don't think I can technically catch the Black Plague again now that I've had it once, so I'm good. <laughs> I'm going to go around biting squirrels. <laughs> back. And until next time, we remain here, hopelessly stuck in the 80s.